When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Doug Scheiding of Road Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Episode number 105 is going on. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on? Jeff Cohen, you are unbelievable. Len and Averman, I am Len Aberman. Len Aberman, you are unbelievable too. <laughs> and I thank you. Jeff, I know we don't have a lot of time because we no. have two, two incredible guests. Yes. Episode 105. I was thinking about it. It's an episode of firsts. Why? We have Greg Rempe. Who right. is he's not the first. Is that the first time he's on? No, it's not the first time he's on. You are correct. But he is. I, and I don't know. This is not a fact that I did research on, but he hosts the Barbecue Central show, which I believe is probably the first podcast that was dedicated to barbecue. Ah, OK. OK. And then. So maybe that's reaching. But we have another first. Mm-hmm. We have Ron Bloomberg. First and he was. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And both of them, both of them were extremely, extremely forthcoming and engaging. They were just fantastic. And so much so that we've split the episode into two parts. Each one is you're going to hear part one of each interview. And then we're going to come back next week with a surprise episode. So it's not going to be their part twos, but then the following week is going to be. So follow along, follow the bouncing ball. Yes. Jeff, tell us, and I'm sorry, tell us why, what, what is going on? Why are we back so quickly? And why do we keep coming out with these episodes? We, so have, a, we have a lot of content and we really, we want to get them out. So you're going to hear a lot of, uh, we're going to be releasing podcasts a little more frequently till the end of the year so get ready it's gonna yeah, be a fun ride. A- it's, and it's it's great interviews i i you know if i don't say so myself <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and you do, and you should, because it really is. It's going to be till the end of the year. You're right. We're going to have incredible episodes. We we were getting so much great content that we had to do it. Jeff, let's yeah. just get right to it with Greg Rempe. Baseball and barbecue listeners, think back to episode number 56. It featured three great guests. It also marked a turning point for the Baseball and Barbecue podcast as the sound sounded, well, basically like crap. But that was hopefully the last time we had that issue. Future episodes sounded better. But thanks to our next guest. If you like our sound, you could send him a note of thanks. In addition to that, I'm grateful to him for helping me over the last two years with my podcasting skills. Some of you might want to send him nasty hate mails for that, but hey, he tried. We are extremely fortunate that our guest has chosen to help another podcast as he is one of the good guys. And you know what? He's spending his Friday night with us. If you happen to hear, we'll do it live or Andrew, you are not the father and you know where those come from, then you darn well know who our guest is. And if you do not, shame on you because you are missing one of the best live fire podcasts out there. We are thrilled to welcome. Greg Rempe, back to Baseball and Barbecue. Welcome, Greg. Len, Jeff, great to be back. And you guys are sounding absolutely extraordinary. And I'm happy to say that there aren't many podcasts that I listen to that I find worthy enough for me to reach out to and try and help. I think there's some ego involved with the show that I might be reaching out to. They don't want to hear it. They think they'll figure it out, whatever the case may be. But I always say this. I've done it for so long that for anybody new that's doing it, even if they're a couple years old at this point, I've struggled through a lot of the same things that those that are beginning now are going through. And if I can lend my bit of expertise within this realm, to help you get through that learning curve quicker, I'm happy to do it. I don't do it for everybody, but there's something about baseball and barbecue. Maybe it's the witty repartee between Len and Jeff. Maybe it's the fact that you're covering topics that I find near and dear to my heart, baseball and barbecue, not necessarily in that order all the time. Or maybe it's just because you have found a niche and you have continued to do it and do it well and get better each and every show, which is really the sign of a show that is not only burgeoning, but growing into its own level of professionalism where each show, maybe it's just a little bit noticeable because you're doing it so well now. But I'm just absolutely thrilled to be here. I'm happy to have helped in whatever way possible. And just to throw the first shot over the bow, I do fear Lent. Oh, and had it not been for Doug Shiding sending Jeff that microphone, ah. he still might be operating through tin cans and string. I might be going <laughs> off on that. But the fact that he does now have a microphone and you guys have teamed up together, the sound has never been better. And it really lends a new level of enjoyment as a listener. And I'm a fan. I've listened to all the episodes. Thank it you. really adds a new 
level of ease of listening that makes the show even better than it was. And believe me, for as bad as it sounded in the beginning, the content was good. And that's why I reached out. This is something unique. The content is good. The hosts are good. They sound like crap. So how can I, what's the easiest fix? And that's why I wanted to reach out and, and give that bit of advice. You've taken it. You've run with it. And now look, I mean, you're, you're unbelievable. And there's nothing else like it. There's no other baseball and barbecue show out there that is getting the level of guests that you're getting, that is talking about the important items of the day and also hearkening back to yesteryear, which I'm sure we'll get into. So congratulations to you both. You're both outstanding. Big okay. fan. Thank you very much. And we do appreciate all the help that you have lent us, even though I was a little reluctant at the beginning there. But, uh, you know, Len was very persistent. And, and thank you to Doug Scheiding, uh, who did provide me with this microphone. So I'm very grateful to him. And, and we're, look, we can take advice. I mean, we're, we're, our eagles are not that great that we, That's we, for sure. we can always learn something <laughs> new. And, and, and I think, we, you know, you're right. Len and I have grown into this and we have gotten better. And that uh, sound, you know, when you, we used to do interviews, it was on, on the cell phone. And we put the microphone right to the cell phone. And that was, oh, I know. <laughs> but we didn't know any better. We didn't know bad. any better. <laughs> when I listen back to the, some of those, you know, but, but Greg, it's, it, it's great because so I get this very expensive microphone that, you know, and, and was glad to buy it. I'm working five jobs now so I could pay for it. And then Jeff gets a microphone in the mail. Not only that, it was mailed to my house and I had to then bring it over to him. I'm like, oh, look, I got a microphone. Oh, no, it's for Jeff. <laughs> if it makes you feel any better, Len, Jeff's microphone is only like $69. So yeah. <laughs> whoever but it's it him didn't really think that much. That's exactly right. <laughs> didn't really dig that far into the oodles of bank account dollars that this person had. So, but it know, does sound good. The, hang your hat on that you have a more expensive mic than he does. Yes. And uh, <laughs> but it, but they do. They sound good. And, do. and you that is it's so important. You pointed it out. And the fact that you stayed with us and you kept listening. And it's so funny because I knew how important sound was. And the first time we, we played the first interview with you and I heard it, I was like, oh, shoot. Oh, why? 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 <laughs> All right. But enough of that. Enough. We've got so many questions for you. I'm ready. And, but first, let me see if I can just take you back, Greg. All right. Take you back to a little place that I like to call a place long, long ago, far away. Yeah. Am this I setting the stage or am I pulling the curtain back too far when I say Len literally has a speaker that's going up to the microphone? <laughs> we, we haven't this learned is... everything yet, have we? Yes. Here we go. Stand up and cheers. You're long and loud. Hold on. Ohio. We're going to bank up Our team is fighting. And we're about to win the fray. Woo! The team. We've got the steam. Do, 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 do. Oh, this is old Ohio State. Oh, this is Ohio State. All right. So if you didn't know, if anyone did not know, Greg Rempe and I are both Ohio University. That's right. The Marching 110, the Bobcats. 
We are alums. The Ohio University? Oh, wait, that's Ohio State. (laughs) The Ohio University. By the way, first university founded in Ohio, 1804. So the Ohio State University can suck it. Don't get them confused. (laughs) We are the first, therefore the best. That is right. We both are graduates. Of course, Greg graduated a little later than me. But we're not going to talk about what year I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but the school, uh, apparently, from what I hear, the school has changed a lot. I'm sure it was changing when I left in 97. And the few times that I've actually been back, each time has been markedly different. So it's both exciting because evolution. And then it's also bittersweet because I remember what it was like for those four and a half years, five years that I was there. And it was a magical time. I would never trade it. I would never trade it. I met my wife there. I've had the best friends I've ever had in my life. I met there. And some of the best times I do and do not remember were had right there in Athens, Ohio. <laughs> no, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. All right, Jeff, go ahead. I can't we can reminisce. Yeah. <laughs> Greg, you've been doing this barbecue central show for a long time. It's been what, over 12 years, I think? More than so that? It started as a as just a podcast in 2006. And then in 2008, we went to the live show and that's how it's been ever since. So 13 years of live show. Yeah. Wow. So tell us, are you a backyard griller or do you compete on the barbecue circuit or is it somewhere in between? Yeah, I'm just a backyard guy. I'm a backyard griller, backyard barbecuer. I would like to think that I'm better than your average backyard griller and barbecuer just because of the time I've had into the industry and the tips and tricks that I can get from the elite that are doing it. I've never had any fascination of competing. I don't care if strangers think that my food is good. I don't have any desire to spend $800, $1,500 over the course of a weekend to have somebody judge my food as being good enough to win or not. I'd rather take half of that money and throw a big grilling and barbecue blowout at my house and have all my friends over. So that's just not something that's in I'm don't get me wrong, I'm an incredibly competitive person, but not when it comes to that. I'm competitive when I'm making the food for my people that are coming over because I want them to like it, but it's not to a let's do it as a competitor in a competition scene kind of a thing. But I love talking to people that do it each and every week. I love picking their brain about it. And I think that's the unique part of the show. It allows me to play out both sides of the fence. I can talk shop with them because I'm dangerous enough to know what I'm talking about. And then I can also really pick their brains for the folks that are doing it at a high level on what makes them being able to operate at a high level and be successful year after year. Greg, I've been listening to your show for a long time now. And there was a period of time, I think, that you had a lot more competition cooks on. As a matter of fact, the thing about your show was that you, if somebody was on your show, they would win the next week. That was the, that was the myth, the legend. And sometimes it was actually true, right? They would, but your show has evolved and I don't hear as much as far as competition cooking. I mean, I hear, I heard talk that you're, this week you were talking about the American Royale Royal. We're still not clear how that's said, <laughs> <Should be pronounced>. but, <laughs> but how has your show evolved? Have you, is it intentional that you've 
let's put it this way. Am I wrong? Have you moved away from competition cooking? And if so, how, why has it evolved that way? You're 100% right. I have completely gone away from where it was once dominating. There were shows for any number of years where I might have two, three, or the whole show, uh, guest segments, four segments, loaded in with pitmasters at one different events over the course of the weekend through various parts of the country. And that was a point in time where you turn on the television, you turn on a radio, you turn on anything. And it was what I refer to as the golden era of competition barbecue. Pitmasters was on television. John Marcus played a huge role in introducing the masses to this thing called competition barbecue. People would see it and go, well, you don't have to be a world-class athlete to be at the top of the game. You can practice, you can learn those right techniques, apply them, and you have the opportunity to be not only the best in the state, but perhaps the best in your region. And if you're really good, you could be the best in the country and do it in various sanctioning bodies. And it was just exploding all over the place. So why wouldn't I turn to these folks, get them on the show, help them promote themselves and brands and classes and products, and also hopefully bring eyeballs and downloads to my show. It's a two-way street here. But over time, it just started to fade and sanctioning bodies had infighting and there's turmoil and a lot of the same old things going on. And it becomes a little boring and there doesn't seem to be an interest. And I think one of the key points if you have a show and you're a good host is that you care what your listening public is wanting to hear. A lot of times I'm posting, what else would you like to hear on the show? Is there somebody you'd like to hear more of? Is there somebody you'd like to hear less of? I've had a stable changes of regular guests and semi-recurring guests. I've added new guests because people are giving me feedback. They're telling me what they want to hear. And right now, over the last four years, five years, where competition barbecue has faded, it has grown exponentially in the backyard. Everybody wants to know how to be a better live fire cook at this stage of the game. Not only that, in the past, look, I mean, we've grilled and barbecued in the backyard forever. It's just never been this accessible or this popular. Now that we're riding the wave of popularity in the backyard, you find out that people, because of the internet and because of access to information right now, they want to know where their meat's coming from. They want to know the grade of the meat. They want to know their cookers. They want to know the reviews. They want websites where they can go check it. They have so much access to everything. They are a better live fire cook right off the bat, if they want to be, than I was 13 years ago or 14 years ago when I got into it. There were only crappy message boards. And who knew if anybody knew what they were talking about? You still had to go trial and error. Now, you still have to do that these days. But now with YouTube and a lot of other video, you can buy video classes and master classes. And you can see the main man or lady that is the expert in the industry showing you how to do it. So you can follow those. And it really ramps up the learning curve. I had to listen to what my audience wanted to hear about. And then I had to make those adjustments to bring them what they want to hear. I want to keep my audience. I want to grow my audience. There's way more backyard barbecuers out there than there are competition barbecue fans, right? So not only does it make sense on a macro level, but just from a host perspective, I want to make sure that I'm giving my audience what they want to hear. And that's what I was feeling. And it continues to this day. I will have 
the major winners on, or I'll still attempt to have the major winners on. So this coming Tuesday, I hope to have the American Royal Invitational winner and open winner if they if they'll come on the show if they're available. Uh, Memphis and May, Jack Daniels, but some of the biggest competitions that we used to have over the years that I was really covering the uh, competition side, they've evaporated. They're no longer there. The interest in competition barbecue has gone down, and so have a lot of the big events, and it's a shame. Really, I mean, I, I've seen a lot of competition barbecue on. on on TV, on Netflix, they, they, I guess they might be old and they keep on rerunning the whole different ones for, for all I know. But I guess that might have been you know, what sparked the interest in the first place. Greg, I got to tell you a, a quick story. My sister's husband, my brother-in-law, was listening to your show. And for some reason, you, you must have mentioned Len and I on, on the show. And he went to my sister and said, you're not going to believe what I just heard on the Barbecue Central show. So I, <laughs> and I had no idea he was listening. So it was just he was just of, a fan outside of you knowing. Yeah. What's exactly. his name? Michael Savino. Michael. We love Michael. He's my favorite. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you how small the world is that. There's somebody that you are closely related to who was a fan of my show and you didn't even know about. I mean, he's not proselytizing the Barbecue Central (laughs) show, which, Michael, we might need to talk about off air. But, I mean, how great is that? I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Greg, you talk about increasing listeners. So your show is one of the rare, I don't have stats, but I think (laughs) your show is one of the rare ones, independent podcasts, that you have some major sponsors. And so, of course, need to keep listeners up and to make the sponsors happy with number of listeners. The one thing that I wanted to ask you is you are now offering um, your podcast for a certain amount of month, right, that you can go on Patreon and pay and get it ad free. Because you have sponsors, has the sponsor said anything like you're offering it for ad free? We want people to hear our ads. Have you heard any kind of feedback on that? I haven't. And you're right. I started to do that because the audience base was asking if there was an option. And I really never looked into it because I mistakenly thought it was going to be hard. Now, if you go back and listen to the last number of months, an Apple podcast specifically, for whatever reason, they make it just an arduous task to get onto their subscription service. And it's been nothing but a pain in the ass. But Patreon is very easy. Like They have it figured out. You can get a custom RSS feed that you can put in your own podcast platform and the show appears like it would any other normal podcast as long as you follow those couple steps to edit into whatever podcast platform that you have it. But to answer your question, they haven't said anything because I released the show in Apple Podcasts the way it's always been released. Full ads, full reads, full bumpers, full everything. And then it's up to the listener at that point to continue with ads. Or they can pay five bucks a month and listen to it without ads. So I haven't taken away the traditional feed. I've just given another option. Some of those listeners that would hear the ads are not going to hear them if they're getting if they're paying for that monthly. For me, I actually like the ads. I, I find that I learn about new products and sometimes these products offer discounts for listeners of your show. Yes. And I find it to be, it's part of the show. I actually uh, would be disappointed if I didn't have the ads. So maybe, well, I hope I'm not in the minority on that because I I think that most people probably either they don't have an issue with the ads or they like the ads. 
Len, ask me how many subscribers I have through Patreon and Apple right now. How many do you have, Greg? Are you ready for this? <laughs> I'm ready. Three. Thank okay. You. <laughs> Thank you. Look, here's what it boils down to. You give somebody an option. You have now thrown the gauntlet down to, as they say, put your money where your mouth is. You right. bitch and moan about ad-free. You want an option. I give you an option. People are like, oh, five bucks a month is too much. Well, guess what? At the end of the show, I now have to invest another 40 minutes of going in, editing out the commercials on both hours. I have to upload in two different places. I have to save three different freaking files because Apple is just different than everybody and they're ridiculous. So I have labor in there. And guess what? Mm -hmm. My hourly rate is very expensive. I am a professional. So if you want that part of it, then you'll pay happily five bucks a month, which three people between the one on Patreon and the two on Apple seem to find the value in that. Fine. In the end, I think I'll let the Apple podcast subscription thing just fade. It's a pain in the ass if I haven't made that crystal clear in the last (laughs) five minutes. But Patreon, I can see something additional. I think there could be some additional bonus content like those origin stories. You know, they could go there or additional how-to interviews or something along these lines because it's just easy. It's a platform that's readily accepted. And if you want to pay X amount a month for this bonus content, it's fine. But then the original show or the original feed won't change. That will remain the flagship product, getting what you get with the reads and all the other stuff. As you said, you've come to know and appreciate all that. And the vast majority have. But I'm always happy to give listener options, see what pans out, and then I can adjust from there. Greg, since you do a live show, there are times when technology fails and you are very adept to switching to another subject or feature. Do you have something prepared or do you, for lack of a better term, wing it? And, and do me a favor, be honest, when you had Leonard on your show, did you really sabotage the audio so he couldn't be heard? <laughs> oh, boy. You really want me to pull back the curtain, don't you? Ben? 100%. I have what I call the cache of go-to topics. And through the week, I'm always looking for something oddball, for something evergreen, where if I wouldn't get to it this week, maybe it would take four months to get to. It's not often that we run into a huge technical issue where I decide so much time has passed within the segment where it's not going to be worth me bringing a guest on to fill the remainder. And then... I've also screwed myself on the back end where now maybe I have eight or nine minutes. So it's not enough time to bring the guest on, but now I have nine minutes or eight minutes to fill by myself that I wasn't anticipating three minutes ago. So I go to the sheet and now I have four, five, six different things that I have prepared in case something like this were to happen that I can start pulling up on. Now, the take is more off the top of my head because it's just an outline of things to go to, or maybe I have a link of an article that I can kind of read through a little bit and then work off into my own take there. But always better to be prepared in a live scenario. There's nothing worse. And I've done it in the beginning where I just thought everything was going to be magical. And then the whole show nosedives. And all of a sudden it's a show about me, not prepared, very uncomfortable, very unnerving and not very good to listen to. And it only takes me once to learn when the show is bad on how to make sure that doesn't happen again for the listener. 
we're going to get to baseball. I just want to I just want to say that we're going to get to baseball, but we'll do that the second half. But I've got some things here that I, I just got to ask you. So Jeff brought this up. I wasn't going to ask you till later. But I mean, besides the interview with me, what is the second best interview you've ever had from a content standpoint or just one that I enjoyed? Give me one you enjoyed because that's what we do this for. That's what we do it for. <laughs> I think the my most cherished interview from a get standpoint was the Michael Simon interview because there was years. It was frustrating to me because my ego was hurt. He's a Cleveland guy. He loves to promote Cleveland. He's very active on Twitter, especially. And I would interact with him and I would send him messages and I would send him show links. And I'm like, how, how are you not coming on my show? And I'll even pre-record it. I was offering, you know, all red carpet treatments that I don't offer anybody. This guy's a big deal, probably has very limited free time. And it was just always met with walls. Very frustrating. Then he opened up the barbecue restaurant downtown a handful of years ago and flew in all the big names. I'm like, where the F is my interview? I'm right here. I could be getting interviews for you to repurpose and give to you if you wanted. I can use them on my show. It's continuous Cleveland promotion. Never happened. And everybody that he flew up, I knew and was on the show. So it was double punch in the face. And finally, after years of trying, it just magically came together through a random tweet from a guy named Doug Durda out in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I just happened to include Michael Simon in a reply back to him. And all of a sudden he was like, direct message me and we'll, and we'll get it put together. And then a week later, I was downtown in Mabel's Barbecue Restaurant with Michael Simon sitting across the table from me. And we sat there for an hour and talked about barbecue and why Guy Fieri was in the Barbecue Hall of Fame. It was great. You ever get into a heated discussion with a guest? Meathead all the time. Well, yeah, you know, actually, I, I was just watching, uh, doing some research last couple of days, and I saw you uh, had a little uh, discussion going back and forth with Meathead about Traeger uh, and Weber finances or whatever. Yeah, going public, exactly. Yeah, you, go, yeah, you do go, go back and forth with him. Yeah, I've had time. plenty of heated discussions with him. I don't think I've ever been contentious with anybody. However, there have been more than I can remember interviews I'm going to share with you an interview that I did with Melissa Cookson, the very first interview I ever did with her. And I didn't know it was going bad until she sent me an email over that night and really said, hey, I don't like the way your line of questioning was. I think you were really showing KCBS bias. You were anti-MBN and all this stuff. And I thought we had a swimmingly great first interview. So I'm reading the email over the morning and I'm like, what the hell is she talking about? So I emailed her back and I said, Hey, nothing would have made for a better show than had you decided to run back at me and go, Hey, I don't like your line of questioning or you, you appear to me to be coming off as pro KCBS and anti Memphis barbecue network. And I have an issue with that. And we could have had that discussion. Like I'm man enough to do that. I'm not scared and it would be great fodder for the show. I mean, fireworks are good. I'm not looking to Jerry Springer or anybody, but if you feel like I'm taking an unfair shot at you, then I would hope that the guest has the testicular fortitude or whatever it is for women to run back at me. Like I'm, 
I'm happy to take that. I'll, and I'm happy to reassert myself if I feel like I'm right, which I probably do. And it would make for a good interview. She said, I don't operate like that, but I'm, I'm going to sit here and tell you. So, you know, going forward, I always wanted to make sure when I had her back on that if she had any, I would remind her before we'd go on. Oh, by the way, if I take a left turn, if I offend you, if I say something, please take me to task while we're talking. I mean, nothing ever came out of it, but I do remember that one specifically standing out that she did not appreciate my line of questioning. She was wrong, 100% wrong. I had no KCBS bias. You go back and listen to it. I was just asking questions. And by the way, at that point, KCBS was way bigger than Memphis Barbecue Network. Oh, by the way, fast forward 13 years later, whatever it is, KCBS is still way bigger than Memphis Barbecue Network ever was. One isn't better than the other, just from sheer size. They're just bigger. So... I can see maybe where she thought I was making a run at MBN, but I'm a fan of all things competition barbecue because it allows me the ability to interview more people about barbecue in general. KCBS has a baseball angle, you know, so uh, Emily Detweiler, mm-hmm. runs KCBS, her brother-in-law is a pitcher for the Miami Marlins. So it's just, a, he's still in the big leagues. He's still in the big leagues and we had her on. And it was just, just great. Uh, you know, how the both of them combine each other. Greg, what's going on with this cigar fascination that you have now? It's burgeoning. You gave, you gave up alcohol, right? And I thought it was for health reasons or whatever. But now you're into cigars. I'm drinking a, a Bud Zero alcohol beer. So if anybody's looking for a, um, I don't know what you call it, beer substitute or an N.A. beer. I've heard N.A. beer being ordered in restaurants. I would never say N.A. beer where I come from. So I just say, hey, do you have any non-alcoholic beer? A lot of them are really bad. Crap. Don't taste good at all. I don't know what it is. This Bud Zero is magical. It really tastes like beer. There's no alcohol in it. It satisfies all of my alcoholic cravings without the alcohol, which is good for everybody. So that's number one. Number two, I didn't give up alcohol for health reasons other than I had a realization that I had a drinking problem, mostly because of a precipitating event that uh, I can either share with you in detail or spare you the details of, but needless to say, wildly drunk in front of wife and two of my three kids, and I don't remember any of it. So who knows what could have happened. Allowed me to have a rethink on some other events in my life as I go back to look at how drunk I had gotten at other points. And said, hey, you know, this is not a, a good thing for me. So I stopped. And it was four years ago, just this past uh, Labor Day Eve. And it's been a great decision for me. And I am keenly aware of people that I'm around that are also drinking that may exhibit issues that I had. And I'm happy to have that discussion with them. And I'm happy to have a discussion with anybody. If anybody in your audience thinks that they're struggling with alcohol, and they want to email me and talk about it, Greg at the BBQ Central Show.com. I'm happy to have that conversation. And I'm happy that two days after that event took place where I could have easily shuffled back and said, eh, I just went too far and no big deal. Everybody will forget about it. Blah, blah, blah. Sterling Ball from Big Papa Smokers, who I just had on Tuesday, just happened in a conversation off air to ask me something about drinking. And then I just felt overwhelmed to tell him the story and come to find out he's got 12 or 13 years of alcohol sobriety going on himself. And he became a huge 
sounding board and reference point and supporter of mine through the days that, and they were few, which was surprising, but the days that came that were really tough. The first Labor Day on a Sunday at one o'clock in the afternoon when I was getting the ribs ready and the smoke was rolling coming in off the cookers. And all of a sudden my chest got super tight and I was like, whoa, what is going on here? And I'm like, I should be having drinks right now. Like this is what happens on Labor Day. And uh, that was tough. So I, I made a call to him and we talked it through and it's happened a couple other times. Uh, Sean Walcheff from Cali BBQ is also uh, a guy that's recovering and he's helped me through some stuff. So I'm never not going to talk about that. I'm not embarrassed of it. I'm happy to tell you all the gory details of what happened to me in the hopes that I can help somebody that might be on the edge of thinking I have a, a similar issue. I just don't know how to deal with it. I'm happy to help, but that's a long way to go to talk about cigars. <laughs> no, but I know it's not for my health. No, but Greg, I have to say that that what you just said, I really I respect your candor and and the fact that you just talked about that. You know, you spoke so eloquently and are willing to help people. You know, I mentioned at the beginning how you were willing to help us. That just goes to who you are. But that I just want to say was was really special. So thank you. And yeah. now talk about cigars. What the hell are you doing? Stay away from cigars. I'm not a golfer by any stretch of the imagination, but I have a really good customer in my day job that has a yearly fundraiser. So I go. That's how much I play golf once a year just for this guy. And it would be nobody else. And they had a cigar roller as we were getting our carts and teeing off. So we grabbed one and I, I smoked. It was like horrible. Everything about it was bad. And, but I kept thinking, if this wasn't so bad, it might be good and enjoyable. And the guy that I ended up being in the cart with was a cigar aficionado. We started having a conversation and then I said, eh, maybe I'll hit up the local cigar shop. And I ended up going to a town, couple, uh, couple places over for me and they have a great cigar shop and the nobody was in there. The owner was there. I gave him the whole spiel about how I'm an idiot. And he walked an hour. He took me through the store and started talking about this cigar. I mean, it, Len and Jeff, this is like barbecue, except it's cigars. There's so many levels and so many sauces and rubs and so many wrappers and binders and fillers and all this other stuff. So immediately, of course, I'm attracted. And I've said, ah, I'll buy some. And if I don't like it, well, then I've given it the old college try and uh, we won't continue on. But I found it to be enjoyable, but more in a relaxing way. Cigar is something that has to be smoked over time. So you have to allot time for it in order to do it properly and, and not and enjoy it. If you smoke it too hot and the, the tastes get off and it becomes a, a less pleasant experience. But there's a lot of nuances to go along with lighting the cigar and getting it going that remind me a lot of why I like drinking too, uh, making mixed drinks and making the martini the right way or the old fashioned the right way. So there's a lot of romance and stuff going on in the whole process, not just smoking it. Do I find it to be incredibly great? No, but enjoyable enough to buy a humidor for 20 bucks to keep some sticks in in case somebody comes along that wants to smoke one, I have some decent ones. Um, and that's about it. But it's just something new. I like it. And maybe in two months, I'll be over it. You mentioned that it goes somewhat with barbecue, though. Didn't I hear, didn't I hear that on your podcast? 
barbecue and cigars go hand in hand. It's, yeah, a listener sent me an email. He was just off his judging duties at some barbecue contest in Nevada. And he's like, oh, by the way, this make and model of cigar goes great with smoked pork. So I, I didn't necessarily, I don't necessarily correlate cigars and food pairing. I guess you could. I usually see it. You know, there's a lot of folks that are doing cigars and bourbon, cigars and whiskey, cigar and scotch. Obviously, I'm not going to do that. But cigars and coffee or cigars and, and certain blends of coffee is also a thing. You go, you start reading into cigars and stuff. They'll tell you what pairs well with this. And a lot of them have hot coffee or espresso or cappuccino or whatever. So it's just something else that is expanding my flavor palette and not really. It's causing me harm, I guess, to a certain degree. But I'm not smoking five big Churchill cigars a day either. And I'm not inhaling. That sounds cliche to say, but <laughs> I think you would get sick doing that. I couldn't imagine inhaling cigar smoke. I would probably vomit immediately. Thank you very much, Greg. I think, I think we kind of said it all in, in the intro for Greg. Yeah, well, what about the intro for Ron? <laughs> You're going to love that. The intro, we usually we love to do an intro for our guests, but Ron was having none of it. As you will see, he just got right into it. And if you guys saw what was going on, Jeff had written this beautiful intro for Ron, and he just <laughs> kept going. It was like, <laughs> how do you do an intro 20 minutes in? You just don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> But it was fun. It was really fun. And guys, listen to it. Here is with Ron Bloomberg. Did y'all get the book? Did y'all get the book? Wait, yes. Right here. Yep. Have, have you read the book? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did oh, you yeah. like the book? Oh, it was fantastic. Very much. I, uh, Wasn't it's it a nice, it's not a typical book. It's not. it's not a typical baseball book where you look at stats all the time. And, you know, people get bored with that. And, you know, I, I think if you get the human elements of, uh, of two players that are totally different upbringing and i don't know if you ever seen the movie bang the drum slowly i have yes okay. De Niro, uh, i think vincent gardenia in that yeah and you yeah. remember the catcher that had cancer uh-huh and the catcher that basically took care of him right michael moriarty so, right yes yeah and i i tell people it's, that's the type of story it basically is because i was injured for the last couple of years and Thurman took care of me just like they did. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's, I thought it was, everybody loved it. You know, I mean, I'm not saying it because I wrote the book. You know, I mean, I, mm-hmm. hey, I got a great a co-author, Dan Epstein, who's written a few books, uh, baseball books. He's very, very big in uh, the music industry. And, but uh, what he has done, and he was a uh, editor for the Rolling Stones, so he was actually uh, a type of writer that really, you know, make things, you know, how can I say, you know, make make things uh, loving. Yeah. He uh, takes your thoughts and he correct. puts it in. Yeah, of course. Correct. Yeah. Thank God I couldn't do it. And I know my English teachers back, uh, uh, <laughs> they, they're dead by now. But if they would have known that I'm an author, they would have died. They would have died if they would have known I was an author. So, uh, but it's been fun. It's really fun. How long y'all been doing this? Three and a half years, yeah, actually. Have you really? Yes. A, a lot of ball players. 
We've had on, yeah, ball players. We had on Marty Appel a few weeks ago. Marty's wonderful. Marty's yeah. great. Yeah, he is. Uh, well, you know, it's funny, Ron, as, we're, as I'm reading your book, what I love is uh, the connections. I mean, I, just uh, for me, I think the book you mentioned, there was a part in the book you mentioned Greg Luzinski. Correct. We, we had we actually went to Bulls Barbecue in uh, Citizens Bank Park, yeah. and we interviewed him. Of course, there's Marty Appel. Kerpovacqua, we interviewed. Right, uh, Kerpovacqua. Really uh, a fun guy. Oh, yeah. Ron Swoboda. Ron Swoboda. Ron, yeah. Your teammate, right? Wasn't he your teammate? Rocky's a great guy. Uh-huh. He's a very... He's very opinionated. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's a very opinionated. I mean, he's very, he's, you know, I mean, I love him to death. I mean, I, I love Rocky. And uh, Rocky and I, we got along extremely well, but we're, you know, I mean, you know, I'm very outgoing. I'm very out there. Mm-hmm. He's very like, uh, whatever he says, it's like, like being in an out. Does that make sense to you? I mean, because, you know, he's very... I don't know the word to it, but you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's a lot different than I am, but Marty, I don't know, you know, Marty wrote a book about Thurman. It was a sure wonderful, is. great sure. book. Yeah. It was a great book Absolutely. and it did extremely well. Mm-hmm. And when I told Marty that uh, I got Diana to write the forward of the book, and I asked him, I said, what do you think? You think Diana will write the forward of the book? He said, everybody who's written a book about Thurman, did desperately to contact Diana and Diana said no. And uh, because I was so close to the family and of course uh, Thurman and I were roommates for quite a few years. And uh, you know, I mean, she broke down to cry and she said, I want you to do it. And I know that she loved the book. I know Mike Munson, who is her son. uh, He loves the book. And uh, I'm going to go there in Canton to do the a scholarship fund. Okay, no, uh, we nice. want to be doing that. This is the third year, and they asked me to do it, and and you know I'm going to go out and do it. So you know I'm happily to you know because I want to do everything I possibly can to try to do everything I can to get him in. And you know uh, it's a long shot, but I've seen a lot of long shots before. Whoever <laughs> thought that we're going to go up to the moon? You know that you're going to have you know, guests to go up to the moon, you know, exactly. wherever they get went to. But exactly. Ron, the, the book, the book, it's, you could, you could read, it's, it's basically, it's a, it's a, it's a story of a beautiful friendship. Exactly. Yes, that's, that's, what, that's what this is. It's a story of a beautiful friendship, Correct. but it's two people that we know about from, uh, of course, being fans of baseball. Sure. Um, I remember when uh, I, I remember I was at uh, summer camp, and I remember when they made the announcement. Uh, it was every morning we had a flag raising ceremony. Where were you uh, at camp? I was at a camp called Frost Valley in the Catskill Mountains. Okay, my camp is the New Jersey Y camp, and that's up in Milford, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you ever heard of it before. It's the largest Jewish sleepaway camp. Oh, which and, one is it? Uh, the New Jersey Y camp. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, it's we got six thousand kids up there. That's it's terrific. big. It's, it's really, terrific. really big. It's, of course, it's all Jewish. You know, it's, it's a kosher camp, but mm-hmm. not a religious camp. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Uh-huh. Where, you know, it's not like part of the uh, camp system that is part of the New Jersey Y camp. Uh, they got Orthodox where mm-hmm. they had, you know, it's up farther than Milford, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you know where Milford is, but Milford is near Port Jervis going up towards this Catskills. 
Okay. Up on the throughway up Port Jorgas. You know where Scranton is? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. About a half an hour away from Scranton. Okay. That's where it is, right up in the Poconos. So uh, that's what I, do, you know, that's what I do. That's true. Unfortunately, last year we couldn't do it because of right. the problem, and, yeah. but we have it this year. So I'm really, really happy Good. for that. When they made that announcement, though, I remember we were all, and I was a kid, but the shock oh, was yeah. just, I mean, Thurman Munson was one of the most beloved Yankees because the funny thing is as fans we didn't care that he was gruff towards the press yeah. we didn't care you know I that know. was you yeah. know the, these things we we just he he was like and, and like I said I was a kid but he was just he was he, a great ball player yeah, yeah. He, was he was a great ball, ball player, player. Uh, yeah. uh, you know unfortunately that's what unfortunately that gets you into the hall of fame or the sports writers Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, a lot of the sports writers did not like Thurman because of uh, who he was. Right. And he was tough. You know, Thurman was a type of guy that, you know, I mean, used to go to the ballpark. He, you know, I mean, as soon as he stepped on the field, as soon as he stepped on the field, he was dirty. I mean, he looked like he ate sometimes a, a <laughs> hot dog or or, you know, a pastrami, and you got the uh, New York mustard on him, and, you know, and he'll catch behind the plate. And, and, but, but he's, he was a born leader. Right. You know, you, you got, you got good ball players, but you got good ball players that are not leaders. Okay. But here's a guy that actually came in. When I signed in 67 with the Yankees, I was 17 years old. I signed out of high school. He signed in 69 out of Kent State. He was 21 years old. So we became friends in uh, 1969 down in actually down in spring training. And we became very, very good friends. You know, here's a, a, a Jew from the South. Okay. Here's a, a blue collar guy from the Midwest in Kenton, Ohio. Uh, here's a guy who had no idea what a matzo ball was. Here's a guy that had no idea what pastrami and corned beef was. And here's a guy that had no idea what a half sour and Dr. Brown's was. Okay, so, you know, having spring training down in Fort Lauderdale, it was great for me because being friends with him, I took him down to a lot. I don't know if y'all probably, y'all probably been down to Fort Lauderdale before. Uh Yes. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. you go to Wolfie's or you go to the Rascal House and y'all, I don't know if y'all remember those places. You you may be a little bit too young for that, but but anyway, but they had the delis down there, and we used to go down there. It's not the New York delis, but you know it was close enough, right? And we used to go down there to eat. He loved matzo ball soup, and I was a hit. And then when I came on the team in actually 1971, we became very good friends. Uh, We roomed together. Not all the times, but sometimes. And when we went to the Midwest, he took me to White Castle. And I had no idea what White Castle was, <laughs> to be honest with you. You know, uh, I, it was basically, uh, to me, it was a crystal. And back home, you know, I told Thurman, you call that crystal. You get like 25 hamburgers. They cost you like, you know, back then, they cost like a nickel a piece. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I think they get like... You know, I mean, uh, I don't know how much they are now, how probably pretty expensive now. But and the good part about it, when I went down to uh, down to Miami for all the eating places like Joe Stone Crab, you've probably been to Joe's before. Yes. And, you know, and 
I used to take them down there. We used to go down there with uh, Phil Rizzuto, Elston Howard. We used to go down there sometimes with Whitey. Uh, Yogi would go down there. But, I mean, he loved that. And, you know, I mean, when you're in Miami, it's like being in, uh, I-, I can't say in the Hasidic. It-, it-, it was like more of like the, I don't know if you remember the Grand Concourse in New York. I in, live there, in, yeah. And the Bronx. Where, where Thurman and I first stayed, we stayed in a place called the Grand Concourse. And that's right up on the Grand Concourse mm-hmm. Plaza, right up there. And uh, we used to walk right directly down 161st to the ballpark. And, you know, when you walk from Grand Concourse down to the stadium, they're just like two and a half to three blocks away. And you can see all the Jewish uh, grandmothers reading all the Jewish papers. You know, of course, he had no idea. You know, he... Right. he that's that's to him before. Even that to me was foreign because being from the South, I mean, we didn't see much of that, to be honest with you. You know, it reminded me going like to Kaya Boulevard, uh, like down in Miami, you, you, you see the Fountain Blue and the Marco Polo and places like that. And you can see the grand Jewish grandmothers like uh, on the streets in the Grand Concourse. So, you know, he really being Jewish and living up in New York and being a ball player living up in New York was a rarity. Not being, you know, being a Jew up there is very, you know, big, of course, but being a Jewish ball player, very you know, rare. I, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah, it's very rare. You know, I was a novelty, you know, and, and, you know, I was somebody that I think a, a, a person that people could relate to because I was easy to relate to. Because, you know, I mean, I was, you know, very outgoing. I talked to everybody, you can see, you know, and what I do. And uh, so it was very, very nice. So I I think that a lot of Jews, when I got up there, uh, I became a hero to most of the Jews because they never seen a Jewish ball player other than Archamsky, who, uh, uh, you know, who was with the Mets. And I, I don't... I know I'm the first Jewish, really the first Jewish ball player with the Yankees. And I think there's a couple of guys that were Jewish. Norm Miller was Norm Miller. Was he with the Mets or was he with Houston? I don't know if you remember, I remember. that. Name. I, okay, remember Norm Miller, I remember which team he was on. Okay. But Sham was, uh, when he came up to New York, I mean, he was real big up there because, you know, he, you know, I mean, Hey, you know, the Jews needed somebody to be, they, they wanted a role model. Mm-hmm. So all the kids back then, I was a role model to a lot of kids. And I, I'm very proud of it because, you know, I mean, it, it was fun to be well-liked. It was fun to be, you know, you doing fairly well up in New York. And, but I was out there. I did so many things up there and, and, you know, and I was a proud Jew. Absolutely. And, you know, Absolutely. I was a proud Jew. Absolutely. I was going to read an introduction, but uh, we're in, into the interview already. We're so. in the, We're in it. Jeff, oh, yeah, no, you know we can talk. No, I do this all the time. Yeah, no, yeah, no, we love it. Ron, let, let, it's hard. I, it, it's too bad you're such an introvert. It really. <laughs> I, know that. I was doing something, you know, it's funny. I did something uh, the other day with Chris Russo with uh, uh, the Mad Dog, okay? And uh, Chris, I. I, I I met him. I did a couple of his shows before, many, many years ago. Mm-hmm. And he got me on the show. He's And I knew that uh, I was like an old timer. You know, he said, Ronnie, like that. I said, golly, Pete, I don't think anybody ever called me Ronnie since high school like that. <laughs> and Chris got on like 
And we started talking and talking and talking. He said, golly, Pete, you're pretty good at this. I said, hey, you know, I, I just talk to people. I just relate to people. And, and I'm not sitting down here and bored. You know, I mean, hey, if you're bored, just turn the bike off and I'll go to sleep. You know, I get my early bird special and go to sleep. <laughs> you know, Ron, you, you, this is the perfect podcast for you because now everything that I've heard, you love food and you love baseball. Baseball barbecue. and barbecue, yeah, baseball and barbecue, especially being from Atlanta, baseball and barbecue, this is the perfect podcast for you. So I think that's barbecue. Let me tell you, there's two places I would say. The second is Memphis. Number one. Number no, no, I'm sorry, number two. Number one, Kansas City. That is I, I would have to say that because for me, I don't have y'all been to Kansas City before? Not yet. Oh, you know, I mean, you know, that was the deal back then. I used to go, you know, where, who I used to go with all the time. I used to go, that was right in Kansas city. Okay. And that was at, at that time it's right at the old ballpark. The old park, basically the old ballpark was about uh, two, three and a half blocks away for Arthur Bryant. And uh, what was the name of the other one? Golly, Pete. I, I forgot the name of it, but, you know, they're the two famous ones, okay? And Elston Howard loved, and of course, you heard of Ellie, of course. Sure. You know, Ellie was one of my closest friends, and we used to frequent, you know, all the great eating places. So he always makes me, you know, every time there was a, a, a check comes, always winds up going to the bathroom. So I, I'm always <laughs> buying his meal, and he's making more money than I am. And I'm saying, you know, at that time we got, I think we made $5 a day for meal money. You know what I mean? That's all we made, you know? It, but we used to go there and we used to bring the people uh, balls and bats and, you know, autographs and stuff like that. But they really took good care of us. But no, no, no. I enjoy food. And, you know, on my website, not my website, but my uh, Facebook, I had no idea how to do technical stuff. I got people to do help me do that for me. And, you know, people say, well, I sent you something on Twitter. I said, I don't even, I, I look at it, but I, I can't, you know, I don't understand it, you know. So I, uh, uh, with this Facebook thing, you know, it's, it's been fun for me. It's been fun for because I've never done anything like this before in my life. And maybe this virus has taken, you know, because I'll be up in New York now. Usually I'm up in New York doing meet and greets, work a lot of with the Steinbrenners. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, it's been, uh, I've been one of the 40 million people been out of work for like 17 months now. You know, I mean, this is, this is not fun, you know, I mean, but it looks like we're opening up. I don't know, you know, down in Atlanta, it's 100% open. I just want to let you know that today was the first day I went into a department store without my mask on. Oh, okay. Yeah, we didn't have to do it. It's like real times and people didn't know what to do. And I was like this. I thought I had my mask. I had no idea. But New York, they said that uh, baseball is going to, it looks like, it looks like it might open up July 1st. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. We'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. Uh, look, Ronnie, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you, you're from the deep south, Atlanta, like you said. You come up to New York. You're the first pick in 1967 by the New York Yankees. You could have went to play basketball for John Wooden. You could have played football for Bear Bryant. I mean, these are legendary Correct. coaches. Correct. Correct. But when you first pick up the New York Yankees, I mean, you, there's no decision. You got to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. If I was – I told my parents, 
I already signed back then when you signed a letter of intent. That was a time that you actually, if you go to basketball, you have to go to that school. It's not like the college kids nowadays when you recruit, you know, you, you, you go to this school, you commit. And then you go to another school the next week, I'll commit there too. You know, I mean, it's not like that. When you commit, when you put your uh, signature on the letter of intent, if you play that sport, you have to go to that school. So I signed with uh, John Wooten, and uh, he came to see me in, in the 11th grade. I signed it when I became eligible, when I became a senior. Uh, Bear Bryant saw me when I was in the 10th grade, and but he, uh, I signed my letter of intent, same time. And, but I knew, but I knew, but my deep down deep, I wanted to play with the Yankees. Who wouldn't? You know, I mean, uh, I was very lucky that the Yankees stunk then. I was very, very lucky that the Yankees drafted me. I knew that they were going to draft me. You know, I mean, it was like three, three months before, because back down south, I don't know if you know, baseball wasn't big really then. Uh, the Milwaukee uh, uh, Braves came to Atlanta to uh, make it the Atlanta Braves. Okay. When you are in Georgia or when you're in the South, it's football country. Mm-hmm. It's SEC. Right. Uh, it's Georgia, Georgia Tech, Alabama, Clemson, you know, all those schools. Okay. So baseball was not big. When I was in high school, everybody on my baseball team realistically had a basketball or a football scholarship. So anyway, even if we won, I think we played like 10 games. That's all. Even if we would have won 10 games, uh, we've been ineligible anyway because everybody signed a, you know, already signed a scholarship. But uh, where most of the scouts found us was American Legion back then. And we had five number one draft picks that year in Atlanta. And I was lucky to be drafted number one in the country by the Yankees. And I told everybody, everybody said, would you have a sign if you would have gone to Chicago or Milwaukee or Detroit or Kansas City? No, it had to be New York. It had to be New York. And thank God, I knew I was going to get drafted and the Yankees drafted me. So, I mean, it was a no brainer. I mean, it's, I mean, hey, you know, being a Jew, living down South, you know, I, I grew up with a big, you know, I was a minority then, a big minority. They had the KKKs back back then. They had the John Burt Society back then. And uh, half of my teammates, when I played, were in the KKKs. Wow. And Oh, oh yeah. And have y'all been to Atlanta before? I have been, yes. yes. Okay. And I don't know if you ever heard of Stone Mountain. Stone Mountain, sure. Okay, so now that's where they had the cross burnings up in Stone Mountain. Mm. And uh, on Friday night after we had a game, or if it's a basketball game or a football game or a baseball game, they had their hoods and their robes in their cars and they went to their cross burnings on Fridays. Mm. And that's, I don't know if you ever seen the movie Mississippi Burning. Yes. Uh, it's exactly like that. It was tough. It wasn't, you know, I was very lucky to be a, a, a pretty decent athlete where the, like the Grand Dragon, they, Grand Dragon lived three houses away from me. And, you know, I mean, back then, you know, back, understand something. The South back then was a different uh, animal than what it is now. Atlanta is, you know, when I was there, it was probably maybe 50, 60, 70 Jews, maybe 25, 30 families. 
Uh, but now I think it's, somebody told me it was like 600, 700,000 uh, Jews down there now. Mm-hmm. And they got a, a shul or, you know, if you, well, conservative, uh, I mean, reform, I mean, they got a temple in every uh, corner. But uh, when I was there, I mean, it was like nothing. You know, you do your bar mitzvah in English. I mean, everybody said, well, did you keep kosher? Yeah, we had kosher style food. You know, I mean, we have, yeah, we had kosher style pickles. And, uh-huh. you know, we, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a different life. It was a different life. But when you go up to New York, you know, you, you it's, it's, it's a whole different ball game. It was a whole different game. But I, I was lucky to play in the greatest city in the world in front of the greatest fans in the world. I got to put on the greatest uniform in the world, and I got to play in the the best stadium ever in the game of baseball, Yankee Stadium. Mm-hmm. Even if you are a, a, a Cubby fan, if you're a Mets fan, it's nothing like Yankee Stadium. You, you know, you, you go to New York as much as I do, and the first thing people, and I know you see all the people selling the transportation and the uh, tours where you go, and the first thing they said, we're going to go to Yankee Stadium. And people want to see that. And that's sure. the that's like a shrine. Yankee mm-hmm. Stadium, even though it's not the real Yankee Stadium, is still the shrine. Absolutely. I remember going to the old Yankee Stadium before they rebuilt it and, and seeing the monument. My, my father actually took me purposely before they refurbished it to see the monuments inside the park. And then going, obviously, they re- rebuilt it. You, put, you guys played at Chase Stadium for a couple of years. And then uh, when, when uh, you went back to the Yankee Stadium, it was just a... Same ballpark. I mean, different look. Same ballpark. That's still where Babe Ruth played. That's still where Lou Gehrig played. You you played there. I mean, oh, absolutely. I would I would tell you every rookie that actually ever got called up, not just from the Yankees, any other team. The first thing that they want to do, they want to go out and see the monuments. Mm-hmm. That's where baseball started. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, I always tell people that's where having a double A started. I mean, you know, when you go out there and see Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig. Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Yogi Berra, you know, people like that. I mean, you know, nobody has that lineage uh, arrangements of great, great, yeah, a great named ball players. And, and that was, and then you look at the Yankee facade, you look at the L, and you look at the, you know, the subway. And it was that mystique. And when I was there, when I first signed my contract when I was 17 years old, and I mean, of course, I mean, you know, I mean, that was like uh, wow. when I signed yes. my contract there. I 17. Mean, you know, I mean, it was like, you know, my first uh, contact, I was with Phil Rizzuto, Bill White, Frank Messer, and it was Walter Cronkite in the booth. And he was the first guy to interview me was Walter Cronkite. <laughs> I didn't even know who he was, to be honest with you. I'm not, you know, I, I didn't know who he was. Back then, if it wasn't, if I'm not watching The Temptations or The Four Tops, on TV or the Ed Sullivan show, I had no idea, you know, who Walter Cronkite was. But, but my parents did, and it was fun, and I really did enjoy it. Ron, one thing I want to get back to is you mentioned in New York, being Jewish, you were, it was, the city was yours. I mean, it was, you, you had opportunities, places you went, food they gave you, but you had to go on the road. When you were going to other cities, wherever it was that you were playing, did you ever have 
get met with anti-Semitism? Did you ever have issues with that? Not really, not a whole lot, but you can always hear. Uh, I know when I got uh, assigned when I was 17 years old and I, I played baseball up in Virginia, West Virginia, they had no idea what a Jew was. Now I'm going, I'm just upfront with you. They had no idea what a Jew was. Right. And, you know, and I was always, whenever I went into these cities, here's the number one jet tours in the country by the New York Yankees, Ron Bloomberg, da, 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 like that first Jewish Yankee. They had no idea. The only time they ever heard of a, a Jew was they reading in the Bible Hebrews. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that they knew what a Jew was. I mean, and, you know, they always heard, you know, they always had the first nickel. And you always will hear that, uh, um, you know, always in the background, you know, there's that Jew ball player, you know, and, you know, and then you go into a uh, department store. Let's say you go into a department store. You said, how much is this? You know, like that $12 like that. And you said, oh, gosh, I just had, you know, $11. And you try to Jew me down. And you probably heard that before. You you probably heard that before. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with that. And I grew up with that. And it's really, it's, to be honest, it's nothing you can do. And my parents were strong enough to always, you know, I, I did what I had to do. And, and uh, um, I just walked away from things. And, you know, and that was the best way to do it because you don't want a confrontation. I mean, no. it's, it's just, you know, I mean, it's, hey, it is what it is. You know, people are, you know, ignorant, you know, and uh, they do not know. They don't understand that. The majority, the owners of all these uh, athletic teams are owned by Jews now. <laughs> you know, back when I was with the Yankees, CBS on the team. And CBS didn't want to put any money on the Yankees. And then when George came in, I, I, I said, oh, God, this is great. I thought George was Jewish at first. Sure, Stein, yeah. You know, I looked at George Steinbrenner. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, and I said, oh, I got it made. Instead of making my $500 raise, you know, maybe this guy would give me $700. I, <laughs> you know what I mean? But no, 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 he was, uh, uh, he was not, but they, they had more Jewish personnel. You know, when I first signed, they didn't have a lot of Jewish personnel people at the stadium. But when I got there a couple of years later, there was tons of them. I mean, Marty Appel was, Marty. you know, he, he, he was with Bob Fischel. I don't know if he talked to you about Bob Fischel. Sure. Yep. And he took Bob Fischel's place and Marty did an incredible job. And Marty did an unbelievable, you know, Marty started, he was uh, Mickey Mantle's uh, uh, guy that got all his mail and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, he I told mean, us about that. That was his hero. Yeah. yeah. Marty, I think, graduated from Oneana. I think he went to Oneana, I believe. I think so, yeah. And, yeah. and then he, he got a job with the Yankees. And the first job he got for, you know, having Mickey Mantle's autographs and stuff. <laughs> so, I mean... I'm not going to say anything. I know you're big Met fans, and that's fine. They're, they're, hey, they're, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. I always tell people, the Yankees won when we wanted to. You won when you could. And mm-hmm. I always would tell you that. And But uh, uh, but you're a New York fan. and you know, Baseball fans. We are baseball fans. Yeah, we, re- we greatly respect everything that the Yankees have done and the players that have been on there. Oh, sure. You have to respect that. You have to – it's it's you can't Len with one exception Roger Clemens no (laughs) (laughs) well Roger was in a case itself I never met him before you know I mean they said he was uh some people told me he was a very nice guy Mm -hmm. and some have you ever met him before no no we've uh no have not met him 
Okay. And we're not going to get him on the show when <laughs> Jeff talks like that about him. No, I don't, you know, I don't think he does these things. I mean, I don't know if he, uh, if he gets into the hall of fame, I mean, he's creeping up a little bit now. I don't mm-hmm. know if, you know, I mean, he's creeping up and how in the world can he creep up and doing the stuff, what he did. Okay. And you had Thurman Munson who had, you know, a great uh, a career in what he had. Okay. And he didn't, do anything. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, yes. and Roger wasn't the nicest guy in the whole world to reporters either. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, Thurman, you know, I mean, alienated a lot of reporters, but that was the guy he was. I mean, it's just nothing you can do about that. And, and that's why with this book is so good because I wanted to show the people actually what he was on the field and then what was the off the field? It was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was a total different type of person. Yeah, the, the book is called The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson by Ron Bloomberg and Dan Epstein. It was a wonderful book. And, Ron, I wanted to ask you, can you tell us your first, when you first met Thurman Munson, how that happened and how you formed such a great friendship? Well, you know, I met him down in spring training. And, you know, like I said before, the – we, we, we enjoyed doing, you know, I mean, he enjoyed playing golf. I did too. He enjoyed fishing. I did too. He enjoyed eating. I did too. Basically it was, you know, I mean, it was like a, uh, a mixed marriage. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It was like a mixed marriage where you got the Southern Jew and you got the blue collar Christian. Okay. And, and he came from a very tough family life. Uh, his father, he was never close to his father. His father was always very abusive. Uh, he married his, uh, Diana was his high school sweetheart. And that was his love of his life. And that's why what happened when he had the plane crash, uh, he, I think, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I've asked people, they, they didn't know. But uh, I think he was in Cleveland, and they had an off day. The next day, uh, mo- the, the whole team went back from Cleveland back to New York, other than Thurman. And Thurman stayed there to be with Diana and the family. And we knew that he was very, very big with aviation. But we didn't know how big he was. And But then he started taking lessons. And he started getting pretty good at it. And uh, then that terrible day... It happened, and uh, that was the end of a a great, 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 great. Uh, uh, well, it was the end of my brother. He was my brother, and it was an end of a, a great catcher. Uh, it was in. He was a great ball player, and he was a guy that he was the engine to make the Yankees go. He was a guy that uh, he was. He had that it factor, and when he was out on that field. And here's a prime example. You've been with the Mets. Like Jerry Grody. Okay, yep. Jerry Grody's a tough guy to talk to. Yep. I would tell you, uh, uh, Rocky would tell you the same way. Sir Bowden would tell you the same thing. But when he was behind the catcher, uh, when, when he was catching, and when he was uh, uh, the pitcher was throwing to him, he took that into control. He, he was in control. Thurman was the same way. But Thurman was was in a more high-profile team. Does that make sense to you? Sure, yep. 
you know, you, you're talking about, you know, it's just like the White Sox and the Cubbies. When you're in the White Sox, it's, it's still a secondary team. And, and the Cubbies are the number one. Yep. Even if the Mets win three, four World Series series in a row, if you go to Israel, everybody still be wearing the you know, New York Yankees hat. Oh, yeah. No, it's, the Yankees <laughs> yeah. are historic. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, they got we the know. brand. Of course. They got the brand. They got, but there's nothing wrong with that. But it is what it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you got the Cowboys and you got the Houston uh, Texans. There's a team that is got the Cowboys. You know, I mean, it's uh, right. You know, it's, it's, it's totally different. And what George did for the Yankees and what he did for the team when he bought the team from CBS, he didn't care how much money was going to spend. First thing he said, he said, I got very deep pockets. He said, whatever we need to do, we're going to do. Just like Steve Cohen with the Mets. Mm-hmm. And I think Steve's going to wind up doing that too because, I mean, he's going to do everything he possibly can to be a miniature George Steinbrenner. Yeah. And I think he will. You know, I, I think he will. And I think he's going to do a good job. Yeah. We hope so. We hope so. Yeah, but right. I think he's going to do a good job. Right. Reading the book, and you're talking about on and off the field. On the field, I got the impression, I know I know this is true, that Thurman made the pitching staff much better, just the way the way he handled the staff. Not, now, that takes a lot of talent. Not a lot of p- catchers can do that. But he made the pitching staff better, and he – got the respect of all the pitchers to the way he called the game. Well, he was the best of the best. Yeah. And that was an era where they had fists and they had a Johnny bench. And I'm not taking any way, anything away from those guys because they're Hall of Famers. They're great ball players. But here's a guy that I played with. I, by talking to other pitchers that have come over from other teams that had great catchers, and then they have to throw to Thurman – they will tell you Thurman was the best they ever had. Yeah. They were the best he's ever had. Like Louis Tian, here's a prime example. Louis, of course, you know, with the Red Sox for many years, he threw to Fisk, and then he came over to the Yankees, and he threw uh, to Thurman, and not taking any away from Fisk. And I tell you, you know, Thurman and Fisk hated each other. It was a known fact. And But uh, Louis would tell you that the best catcher he, he's ever thrown to was Thurman. Because as soon as he got behind the hitter, he took total control. You know, you can tell a good catcher or a great catcher about, uh, about the time that a pitcher will call off the pitch. And if you see a pitcher going like this and rubbing his uh, like this, that means he's rubbing off a sign. But you, maybe once or twice a game, you would ever see a pitcher call off a signal from Thurman because Thurman was a computer. Thurman was, you, you didn't have to be analytical when Thurman was catching because he was analytical when he was behind catching because he knew how to, he knew each and every pitcher, how they threw. Some games, if a pitcher doesn't have the stuff that he usually would have, he would work on another pitch and he will work it to a point where he will build up control of that pitch. And, you know, I mean, he took total control. And the, and if Billy Martin or Ralph Howell or Bill Verdon or Bob Lemon would ever come out, first thing he would do is look at Thurman to say, should I take him out or should I not take him out? He's not going to look at the pitcher. 
And Coach Catfish never wanted to be taken out. Mel Stoudemire never wanted to be taken out. You got Gidry, you got Gossage, and they didn't want to, Kenny Holzman, they didn't want to be taken out. But if he looked at Thurman and Thurman said he needs to go. And first thing, he's going to take, he's not going to ask the pitcher because pitchers never want to go out. But he's going to ask Thurman, what do you think? And Thurman would tell you he could go maybe one more inning, maybe he could go for one more person, get somebody else up, you know, let him pitch to this guy or say, I don't think, he, you know, his, his ball is too flat. It's not moving. Uh, it's not sinking. And if you're in a close ball game, if a ball is not sinking and a hitter's, you know, I mean, he's ready for a pitch. And if the ball's not sinking, it might be like an Aaron Judge or a Dave Kingman hit the ball 700 feet. So, I mean, a catcher is the guy that makes the team go. In order to have a great team, you have you got to have a great catcher, have have a great shortstop, second base, and center fielder. You got to be up the middle. Up the middle. You got to be up the middle to have a great team. Ron, obviously, you know Jeff and I, uh, whatever you know, we we've stood at the plate, right? You know, we played some <laughs> little league ball. That's okay. I played a little more, but. When you're standing there and you're facing like uh, Nolan Ryan, right? And and you're staring at a hundred mile an hour fastball coming at you. What's that? What's the feeling when you're standing there and you have that split second and you talk a little bit about how you only have a split second in the book. I think you said something. Oh, he's, he's more scared than I am of him. He's scared of pitching to me. I want to face the best pitchers. If you have any type of reluctancy to go up there to hit, you won't hit. It's, it's impossible. Hitting a baseball is probably the hardest thing in any sport to do. And you're getting a baseball coming 100 miles an hour and it's sinking. He's throwing a slider, breaking. If you like a, a, a Burt Blylevin, you know, you know, if you see the Grom, he has a real nice fastball. He's a pretty decent pitcher. And, you know, you got uh, – uh, Cole, who's a real, real good pitcher, too. Mm-hmm. But, oh, absolutely not. If you're a hitter, you want to face these guys. I want to face every great pitcher. I hit, I think, four, three, four home runs off of Dolan, okay? And I hit a few off of Jim Palmer and Gaylord Perry and Catfish Hunter and, and, and people like that. And people say, what was it like? Were you afraid? If you're afraid, you might you shouldn't play. Mm-hmm. God, the greatest thing in the whole world and the great worst thing for me was when I could not play in the World Series when I was injured. Hey, your whole life, when you're growing up, when you played literally, and I don't know if you felt like this, you know, sometimes you go up to hit. There's a man on third base. You're in the World Series. Two outs. You got to get the guy in. God, that's wonderful. See, the greatest part about basketball is you're losing by two points. You don't have any time left. You got two free throws you got to shoot. Could you do that? You'd be thinking about that. But that's yes, good. But, okay, <laughs> but, that's, but that's the difference. Okay, that's the difference between a guy that has heart and he wants to be in a position like that. And there's a, not, a lot of players that played minor league baseball and even in the big leagues don't want that pressure. They're not real good at that. But you wanted that pressure. Oh, absolutely. You craved it. 
Absolutely. That's, I mean, that was yeah. the greatest because whenever I played down south, you know, when I was growing up, I imagine I was Mickey Mantle, a man on third base, two outs. I got to get this guy in. It's the last game of the World Series. I got to get him in. If I don't get him in, nobody else is going to get him in. I got to get him in. I got to do everything I possibly can. You know, I mean, you, you are on a natural high that, you know, your body takes over. But a lot of people will get in a position like that. Instead of holding the bat, uh, the bat loosely, you grip it a little bit tighter. Now, all of a sudden, you know, you want to swing and that bat is like a quarter, quarter, quarter of a second slower than what you normally swing at and you don't hit the ball. Ron Bloomberg, part one. Greg Rempe, part one. Cannot wait till part two. And guys, please go to baseballbbq.com for their wonderful grilling tools and accessories. Go to the Ball Pandemic Book Club for their wonderful books, the authors, their swag. And also go to fifthandcherry.com for their wonderful cutting boards. Jeff, I cannot wait for part two of both of those interviews because they were so real. They, they just, they poured their hearts out to us. They told us so many things. I, I can't wait. So, but I'll see you next week. Special episode next week. Very special. Been working on it for a long time. It's a very, very special episode. So please tune into that one as well. And we will see you next week. And how do we close? With our friends, the poet, Shel Krakowski, the musician, Dave Dresser, with baseball, always brings you home. Thanks, everyone.
Oh, oh, oh.